The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is an art museum in the Fenway Kenmore neighborhood of Boston. It's home to an impressive collection of paintings, sculptures, tapestries, and other works. But most people go to see the paintings that aren't there, the empty frames that are a reminder of the most famous art heist in history. That's right, over $500 million worth of art was stolen and never recovered from the Gardner Museum. Today on I Can Steal That, we're going to go into detail about the Gardner heist. Okay, so before we get into the crime itself, I want to build a little bit of background about the museum and its founder, Isabella Stewart Gardner. Isabella Stewart Gardner was born Isabella Stewart in New York City on April 14th, 1840, and she was the daughter of a wealthy linen merchant named David Stewart and Adelia Smith Stewart. Uh, she was pretty much placed into the lab of luxury. Uh, her parents were very wealthy. She grew up uh, in Manhattan, spent a lot of time in Jamaica and Long Island, uh, now Queens. Uh, and then she studied, uh, she studied at an academy for girls and kind of learned about art, music, and dance and had a really formal education, uh, learning French and Italian as well. Eventually, her family would actually move to Paris uh, when she was about 16. Uh, she went to a school for American girls, but it really kind of fostered her love for the art that was going on at the time there. Uh, and eventually, uh, in 1857, she was taken to Italy uh, and in Milan, she went and saw a collection of Renaissance art arranged in rooms designed to kind of uh, bring attention to specific historical eras. Uh, this this kind of resonated with her, and she said uh, at that time that if she ever got a lot of money, uh, she would try to do the same thing. Uh, that's, that's foreshadowing right there. Uh, eventually, she came back to the States uh, and ended up meeting somebody named Jack uh, John Lowell Jack Gardner. Uh, he was a little bit older than her, uh, three years or so, uh, and he was one of Boston's most eligible bachelors. Uh, so he was another, like, probably rich, handsome guy. Uh, they lived in a house that uh, Isabella's father gave them as a wedding gift in Boston, and they would live there the rest of Jack's life. Jack and Isabella would eventually have a child, uh, but unfortunately that child died of pneumonia uh, at about two years old. Uh, the next year, Isabella miscarried, and after that was told that she could never have children of her own. Uh, a few years later, though, Jack's brother died and left behind the three young boys, and Jack and Isabella did adopt them, and according to Isabella's biographer, she was, quote, in her duty to these boys, she was faithful and conscientious, uh, which I guess is just a good way, uh, or a nice way to say she was not an awful parent. Um, so that's, that's good. Good for her. Once the boys were older, uh, Jack and Isabella started traveling a lot. Uh, they'd go all over the world to Asia, to Europe, uh, particularly France and Italy. Uh, they also spent a lot of time in the Americas, uh, Middle East, pretty much, pretty much everywhere. Uh, they, they went and saw it all and, uh, they took about 12 trips together and those 12 trips lasted over 10 years. Uh, so it wasn't like 
wasn't like, you know, the weekend trip to Vegas where after day four, you're kind of ready to come home. Uh, this was a decade of travel. Uh, and during this travel period, uh, that's really when they started, uh, that's really when they started to go ahead and build their collection. Uh, they started as, as one does when starting a world-class art collection with masterpieces from the Renaissance, uh, a lot of really famous paintings, uh, including the first Vermeer brought into the country. Uh, that painting was eventually stolen, but we're going to get to that. Uh, so that's uh, that's coming up in a bit. Uh, they didn't really stop at paintings, though. They, they really bought anything they liked. Uh, they would go ahead and pick up paintings, sculptures, uh, tapestries, photographs, uh, silver pieces, uh, I mean, really, whatever they saw and they liked, they would buy, uh, including architectural elements. Uh, they would just buy doors randomly or mantelpieces or stained glass windows. Like, as long as they liked the way it looked, like, they would buy it. Um, eventually, though, they realized that they did not have room in their house uh, for all their stuff. Uh, and they had already gone and expanded their house once and just realized that they, they really couldn't do that again. And they just had so many pieces in their collection now uh, that it was just kind of sitting around, uh, not displayed properly and barely able to be stored. Uh, in 1898, John died really suddenly. Uh, John again was Jack, uh, usually called Jack. Uh, but Jack died really suddenly in 1898. Uh, and it was at after his death that Isabella really decided that they were going to, or that she was going to go ahead and realize their dream of having an art museum where they could display their collection properly uh, and have the public see it because uh, she was really big on the idea of having art enjoyed by, by everybody. Um, so she started working on, on the museum. Uh, she bought a swampy tract of land in the Fenway area of Boston and started uh, working with architects and eventually building the museum that we see today. The museum itself is four stories, uh, and it's, it's kind of centered around a courtyard, and that courtyard has, is covered with glass um, in the form of skylights, not like broken bottles and things like that. Uh, and that was actually the first building in the United States to kind of use that open air design uh, with that courtyard in the middle, but still being protected by the glass uh, from the elements. Once construction of the building was complete, it took Isabella about a year, uh, a little over a year actually, uh, to go ahead and manually uh, make sure that every single display was perfect and exactly the way she wanted it. Uh, she spread out all the works around the third and uh, second and third floor of the building, uh, eventually moving some pieces down to the first floor um, because they were so large, they kind of dictated their own space. But she, was, she worked really, really hard to make sure that there was a general narrative um, and an experience um, when you went into the building. So it wasn't, wasn't just like paintings on the wall. She really, she really put a lot of care and work into it. Um, an example of this is uh, the Taishian uh, masterpiece, The Rape of Europa, actually hangs above a piece of uh, green silk. Uh, that silk was actually cut from one of Isabella's gowns. Like She sacrificed her gown to, uh, to really make sure that everything was perfect. So she was putting a lot of work, effort, and thought into 
uh, having the museum be exactly the way that she wanted it. Uh, that was how important this project was to her. When everything was finally ready, uh, she threw a hell of a gala. Uh, she, she really opened it with some flair. Uh, she ended up having members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra come in and play music. Uh, she handed out champagne and donuts. It sounded like a really good time. So after the gala, the museum opened in 1903. Uh, and Isabella loved the museum. She actually ended up uh, living on the fourth floor of the building uh, anytime she was in the area. Uh, she did travel a little bit still, but when she was in Boston, uh, she was living at the museum on the fourth floor. Uh, then in 1919, uh, she suffered the first of a series of strokes that would last about five years until her death in 1924 on July 17th. Uh, after her death, uh, her will stipulated uh, that there was a $1 million endowment uh, and had a lot of stipulations for the support of the museum, uh, including, like I said before, the idea that the uh, collection not be significantly altered. Um, she also left sizable donations to uh, a lot of charities around Massachusetts uh, and Boston in general, uh, including the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, uh, the Industrial School for Crippled and Deformed Children, uh, the Animal Rescue League, and the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Uh, so she was a very generous person. Um, and after her death, uh, her office actually ended up, uh, or where she was staying on the fourth floor, uh, for a while that ended up being uh, where the director of the museum would live. Uh, and eventually it became office spaces and is still used as office spaces for the museum today. The museum actually features a really recent uh, extension as well. Uh, back in 2002, uh, there was about a two-year master planning process, and the museum's board of trustees decided that a uh, new wing was necessary um, for, for a lot of reasons, um, mostly because the, the collection in the museum were getting uh, so many visitors uh, in the 21st century as there's more people, and uh, after the theft, the museum became uh, much more famous, uh, that they really just needed a place to go ahead and expand. Um, and the extension is, uh, it's a beautiful, uh, actually really beautiful. Uh, it's a, uh, designed by architect, uh, architect Renzo Piano, uh, and they went ahead and, uh, tried to make it a respectful complement to the historic, uh, museum building and scale form and materials. Uh, the new, the new space is really used for like visitor services, concerts, uh, special, uh, special rotating exhibitions. Um, education and landscape uh, programs, uh, and a lot of a lot of different things, and they've really tried to try to integrate the the new wing in a way that's uh, that balances with uh, with the old wing. And they there are a lot of things that constantly change with it. Like um, the courtyard constantly has new plants and like horticultural exhibits because that was something that Isabella was very interested in as well. All right, so we know a little bit now about. The museum, uh, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, uh, and a little bit about the life of Isabella Stewart Gardner. Uh, so now we're going to go ahead and we're going to start getting into the crime itself, the the art heist. And uh, I, w I just want to kind of mention here that I'm going to start with the things that we know for sure. Uh, we, we know when it happened. Uh, we obviously know where it happened. And for the most part, we know how it happened. Uh, so those are going to be able to cover first, and then we're going to get into some of the really wild theories 
uh, about who might have perpetrated this, uh, this theft. All right, so let's set the scene here. It's 1990, and it's the night of St. Patrick's Day, or St. Patrick's Night, I don't really know. Um, so we're, we're looking at the late, late hours of March 17th into the early, early hours of March 18th. And this is Boston. So things are, things are pretty crazy. Uh, a lot of people drinking in the streets. Uh, I mean, you can, you can imagine what St. Patrick's Day is like in Boston. I'm sure I don't have to spell it out for you. It's like when Mark Wahlberg releases a new movie, the, the same level of pandemonium. Just after midnight on March 18th, 1990, a red Dodge Daytona pulls up to the side entrance of the Gardner Museum. Uh, there's two men inside, and they sit there for about an hour waiting for some of the St. Patrick's Day parties and other, uh, other general uh, festivities to kind of die down a little bit because uh, they don't want to be seen. At 1.24 a.m., one of them gets out of the car, walks up to the buzzer, uh, goes ahead and rings it, and tells the night watchman, 23-year-old Richard E. Abath, uh, that they're there because they got a report of a disturbance in the museum's courtyard. Uh, Gardner, uh, the Gardner Museum policy was not to allow uh, people to come in, um, but Abath, he's not sure if that applies to cops, uh, he's, especially because they say that they're there to investigate something for the museum, and they look pretty legit. Like, they're wearing Boston PD uniforms. They've got big old porn stashes. Uh, so Abath decides to let him in. Uh, they, go, they all go to the security desk. Uh, and immediately one of the police says, hey, you actually look just like this guy that we have a warrant for. Uh, get me your ID and face the wall. So Abath produces his ID, faces the wall, and is immediately handcuffed. Uh, a few minutes later, the second security guard, the only other person uh, to be in the building, uh, he kind of shows up and is also immediately handcuffed. Uh, he goes and asks the men, he's like, hey, why are we being arrested? And that's when they finally say, this is an arrest. This is, an, uh, this is a robbery. Uh, they take the two men down to the basement in handcuffs and then proceed to duct tape their hands, uh, arms, feet, and heads uh, they blindfolded them with duct tape uh, and also did it around their chin. Like, I'll put a picture up of, uh, of what Abath looked like when he was found by police. But they duct taped them to pipes. And once the two guards were neutralized, they started their robbery. And over the next 81 minutes, uh, which isn't even enough time, by the way, to see the Mighty Ducks finally beat the Hawks at the end of Mighty Ducks 1, uh, in that, those 81 minutes... Over half a billion dollars worth of art is stolen. Again, that's half a million dollars, or that's $500 million stolen in 81 minutes. So one of the things that I find most interesting about this heist is that the Gardner Museum's motion detectors actually were able to trace the exact footsteps of, of the thief. So we know exactly what happened and when it happened, uh, which I think is a really unique insight. Uh, so we know for a fact that once the guards were tied up in the basement, the two thieves went upstairs to the Dutch room. Uh, one of them approached Rembrandt's self-portrait uh, that he did in 1629. Uh, and a local alarm sounded, uh, which basically is just a buzzer to get the attention of the guard, not anything that's wired to a phone and going to call the police. Uh, but once that alarm sounded, 
they smashed the uh, the alarm and then they pulled the painting off the wall and tried to take it out of its really heavy frame. Because remember, they're driving around in a Dodge Daytona. Uh, they don't have the room uh, for, for anything big. So they go ahead and try to take it out of its frame, but it's not a canvas painting. It was actually painted on a wooden panel, and they were unsuccessful at getting that out of the frame. Uh, so they ended up leaving that painting on the floor and going over to uh, a couple more works by Rembrandt. The Storm on the Sea of Galilee and A Lady and Gentleman in Black. And both of those were painted on canvas, and uh, they were uh, removed from the frames. Uh, they also ended up going over to a Vermeer. Uh, his work, The Concert, uh, which I mentioned a little while ago, is the first Vermeer to be brought into the country and is also the most valuable unrecovered painting of all time. Uh, this single painting is worth $200 million. Uh, they also ended up going over to uh, Goavert Flink's landscape with an obelisk and cutting that from its frame. Uh, they also ended up going and taking a Chinese bronze goo, uh, which is basically a vase that's kind of kind of looks like a champagne flute uh, with like a little ball at the bottom. But it's basically a, a bronze Chinese vase. This one is from the Shang Dynasty. Uh, elsewhere in the museum, they kind of made their way around uh, the museum they ended up stealing five drawings by Degas, uh, most famous, of course, for his, his ballerinas. But they took five drawings, which are obviously easy to, uh, to transport, and they didn't have to worry about any metals and frames. Uh, they also took a Napoleonic eagle finial. Uh, finial is that thing that's at the end of the flagpole. A lot of times it's a spike or an eagle. Uh, there's actually a lot of really interesting rules about what should be at the end of a flagpole. Uh, I remember most of that from my time in the army. Uh, this one though was an eagle uh, and it was used uh, by Napoleon. Uh, so they tried to actually take that, uh, the whole flagpole off the wall, but failed. So they just took the, uh, they just took the, the finial from it. Um, they also took uh, a manet or a manet, I don't really know. I'm not that fancy. Um, but his Shea Tortoni uh, uh, was stolen uh, out of its location in the Blue Room. Uh, so those were all of the works that ended up being, uh, being taken. Uh, and they stole so much that they actually had to go ahead and make two different trips to the car with artwork during the theft. Uh, once they had loaded everything up, they uh, went down to the guards one more time and told them that You'll be hearing from us in about a year. Of course, they did not hear back from them. Uh, not a year later, not, not ever. Nobody from the museum, uh, including the guards, has ever been contacted by either the thieves or the people that may or may not be behind uh, or even claim to be behind the theft. Now, one of the things that I think is most interesting about this case is the fact that while the paintings and artwork that was stolen is crazy, crazy valuable, uh, worth half a billion dollars easily, uh, one painting, of course, being $200 million by itself, uh, they left things there that were way more valuable, uh, way, way more valuable. Uh, if they would have gone in with, like, the supermarket sweep mentality of just trying to, like, rack up dollar amounts, like, they would have gotten a billion dollars easily. Uh, some of the uh, some of the paintings that they walked by because they uh, especially when they went to go get the the finial like the thing from uh, from Napoleon's flagpole uh, when they were on their way to the finial they passed by a couple Raphaels 
as well as a painting called The Rape of Europa, which is one of the most museums, uh, or one of the museum's most well-known and valuable paintings, and those weren't touched. Um, so this definitely lends, uh, lends a lot of credence to the idea that the two guys that uh, came in in fake uniform, fake cop uniforms and wax mustaches, that's right, those porn stashes were made of wax, uh, they were really shitty art thieves. Uh, they were definitely not uh, professionals of the caliber that we'll be covering in some of our future episodes. Uh, the two guys that ended up pulling off the greatest art heist in the history of the world were two assholes in a Dodge Daytona. All right, so the fact that they went and passed all these uh, way more valuable paintings uh, and other works of art, like some of the sculptures were very expensive as well. Um, but the fact that they passed all those up, uh, and also the fact that they really, really manhandled these, uh, all these works of art, like cutting, cutting things out of frames, uh, trying to get the uh, Rembrandt self-portrait out and not being able to, uh, not knowing that it was wood, uh, and the fact that like some of the frames they just like they smash to get uh, the Degas sketches, uh, all points to one of two things: either total amateurs driving, uh, going ahead and uh, and doing this and swinging way above their batting average, or uh, professionals that were trying to make it look uh, very evident that they were uh, that they were amateurs. All right, so let's talk now about some of the likely suspects. I'm going to try to do this uh, in an order of, and this is, of course, just according to me, uh, the likelihood of, of these suspects. Um, so we're going to go ahead and we're going to start with a group called uh, the Merlino Gang uh, or the Merlino Crew. Uh, this is also the, uh, the theory that the FBI has uh, really put most of its... Uh, most of its focus on the past few years. Um, I basically the way the the way the theory goes is that a uh, mob connected guy named Carmelo Merlino, uh, who is an associate of the mob, not necessarily in it, hired two guys uh, named George Reisfelder and Leonard Demuzio to go ahead and actually pull off the pull off the heist. Uh, Carmelo Merlino. Uh, he owned a repair shop, and uh, they were able to uh, to trace Reisfelder and Demuzio to going there pretty often. Uh, so that's likely how they knew each other. Um, of course, Reisfelder and Demuzio can't be brought in for questioning because they both died shortly after the crime. Uh, they both died in 1991. Uh, Reisfelder died at 51 of a coke overdose, and Demuzio was 43 when he died. He got shot to death in East Boston. Uh, there was another guy that was an associate, uh, not involved with the uh, the actual heist, like not one of the the two wax mustache and wearing cops. Uh, that guy's name was Dave Turner, uh, and he is actually he's the only one left alive. Uh, he's uh, supposed to be uh, getting out of jail in 2025. Uh, the reason that they think that uh, Merlino went and commissioned this robbery uh, was because he wanted to kind of sit on the paintings uh, and all the artwork until the reward money kicked up. And once the reward money kicked up, he was going to go ahead and, uh, you know, somehow miraculously find the paintings, uh, return it, and get that reward money. Uh, it's 
it's kind of important to note uh, that this is this idea of like ransom and uh, and kidnapping art is super super common. It's actually one of the most common motives and reasons for an art theft. Uh, one of the things that people don't really realize about art theft is that it is very very difficult uh, to steal a work of art uh, and then find a buyer for it. Almost always, if a piece of art is stolen, there's probably a buyer lined up in some way, shape, or form. Uh, because, again, you can't seal a, even a, or especially a famous work of art uh, and then try to shop it around because people will call the cops on you quick, fast, and in a hurry. Uh, a lot of times people uh, that own the art will, will arrange to have them stolen so that they can sell those uh, to the insurance company or perform insurance fraud and get the get the check from the insurance for the missing work and then you know a few years later put it back on their wall and nobody's the wiser uh so those are the the most common motives uh but a couple interesting facts with that merlino actually uh he instead of going and uh exchanging the paintings for the reward he actually ended up uh because he was a big dumb guy uh getting caught in an fbi sting in 1999 uh, trying to rob an armored car depot. Uh, that was the same crime that uh, that Turner was arrested on and the one that he's doing uh, doing time in jail for. Uh, the FBI offered uh, leniency in exchange for the stolen artwork, uh, but Merlino was never able to give that to him or never willing to give that, uh, give that up and died in prison in 2005. Once Merlino had the paintings, uh, the FBI is pretty sure... Uh, that the artwork ended up in the hands of a guy named uh, Robert uh, Goranti. Uh, his friends called him Unk. Uh, he was a convicted bank robber with ties to the mob in Boston and Philly. He also died. Uh, he died in 2004. Um, a few years later, a few years after his death, uh, Gorani's wife told the FBI that before her husband's death, he gave two of the stolen paintings to a Connecticut mobster named Robert Gentile. Uh, while they're meeting in Maine. Uh, Gentile is 80 now, uh, and he's currently waiting in jail uh, for a trial on federal gun charges. Again, the FBI tried to uh, give him leniency on those gun charges in exchange for the artwork, uh, but he says that he knows nothing about it. Uh, the authorities in the FBI, however, say that he offered to sell the painting several years ago for half a million each, to an undercover FBI agent. Uh, so definitely a pretty compelling case there of he said, fe she said, Fed said, whatever. Um, but definitely interesting and probably the likeliest case. All right, so probably the second likeliest case uh, is that it was an inside job. Uh, remember earlier I mentioned the 23-year-old uh, security guard at the museum, uh, Richard Abath. Um, there's, there's actually a few really interesting, uh, interesting things about uh, his behavior uh, that make him maybe not the best suspect, but definitely a pretty compelling one. Uh, some of the things that uh, happened with him, uh, he was in a rock band, and not to say that playing in a rock band will make you an art thief. Uh, that would actually be a lot cooler. Uh, but he did have a lot of his friends uh, come in for quote-unquote private parties and things like that. So uh, he kind of, like you know, mentioned when he let the cops in, or the, the robbers in that were dressed as cops, uh, that he knew the policy about visitors, uh, but he would often have his own friends come into, uh, to the museum, uh, and he did that pretty regularly. Uh, 
A um, few other things uh, that are interesting to note. Uh, the fact that uh, he opened the door uh, before he buzzed the uh, the police in, like, he opened that up a couple times uh, before uh, before the police actually, or the before the robbers actually came in, uh, including just a few minutes beforehand. Uh, he said that it was to make sure the door is properly locked. Maybe he was smoking, uh, but it's it's suspicious. Uh, and finally, uh, I think this might be the uh, I think this might be the uh, the most compelling uh, case here. Is remember when I said that one of uh, one of the paintings it was uh, actually uh, Manet's Shea Torto, uh, Tortoni uh, was stolen from the Blue Room. Uh, you'll also remember that I mentioned the motion detectors were able to track the footsteps of everybody in the museum. Uh, the two thieves never went into the blue room. The only foot, uh, the only motion detecting, uh, the, the, uh, or the only footprints that the motion detector picked up uh, were those of Abath's. Uh, and he, he said that he was in that room a couple times doing his rounds. Uh, and that does actually match up. But if nobody else went in there, uh, I don't know who would have taken uh, who would have taken that painting off the wall. Uh, it's very likely, at least in my mind, that uh, he ended up doing that one himself, uh, and that maybe he was connected to all of that. He uh, vehemently denies that he was, uh, but I think that that is probably the most compelling piece of evidence against him. Uh, and also, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of crimes are done with the help of an inside man at some point, like. Whether it's just letting them inside or whether it's uh, act actively taking things off the wall, uh, and he might have done both. There's also a video of him the night before the crime uh, letting another uh, unidentified man into the uh, museum after hours. Uh, during his shift, there's a six-minute video of him uh, taking a, quote, unauthorized visitor into the museum uh, the man has not been identified, but he spoke for uh, several minutes with Abath at the security desk before leaving. Uh, so it's really unclear what that was. Uh, the FBI will not release that. Uh, but is it the two of them going over the details of the crime? Possibly. Is it maybe Abath just trying to buy a bag of weed? Equally likely, uh, but definitely suspicious and definitely worth checking out. So after the Merlino crew and Abath, uh, there's really not too many super, super likely theories. Uh, the next one's actually, it's fairly plausible, I guess. Um, and it's, it's probably what I would consider to be the last actually possible credit, uh, or credible theory. Uh, this one actually involves a screenwriter from California. Uh, the guy's name is Brian McDevitt. Uh, he really, he moved out of Boston to Hollywood where he's working as a screenwriter. Um, but 10 years or so before he did that, or before the, uh, before the burglary in Boston, uh, he was actually, uh, arrested for a strikingly similar crime. He wasn't able to pull it off, but, uh, listen to the details on this. Tell me if it doesn't sound familiar. So McDevitt and an accomplice hijacked a FedEx truck in 1980 uh they knocked the driver out with an ether soaked rag um no wonder he is a screenwriter he's really got a flair for the dramatic so dressed in fedex uniforms and carrying duct tape uh as well as tools 
uh, that they were going to use to bind employees and also cut uh, cut paintings out of uh, out of their frames and things like that. Uh, the two of them, um, you know, basically started heading to rob the Hyde Collection in Glen Falls, New York, which is another art gallery. Uh, unfortunately for those two, uh, they got stuck in traffic uh, and arrived at the museum shortly after it closed. Uh, so they were unable to go ahead and perform that heist. Uh, but the FedEx driver that they had knocked out was able to identify them and uh, they confessed to the crimes. McDevitt was 20 at the time, served a few months in jail for the attempted robbery. Uh, he was actually living in a Beacon Hill apartment, uh, McDevitt was, uh, when the two thieves dressed as cops entered the Gardner Museum. Uh, he got interviewed by the FBI a few times uh, and then questioned by a Boston federal grand, or a federal grand jury in Boston. Uh, but basically, he said that uh, he didn't know anything about it, couldn't be any help, uh, and he died in Columbia at 43 uh, back in 2004. Uh, I really don't think it was him, but I mean, it's, it's possible. It's almost the same MO, uh, except with cops instead of FedEx drivers. So worth checking out. All right. So the next one get a little weird. Um, I'm going to start actually with one that I think is like the least, uh, the least likely, uh, and that's notorious, uh, Boston gangster, Whitey Bulger. Um, there's really no credible, uh, no credibility to this theory other than the fact that he was basically Boston's Al Capone. Uh, and so a lot of people said that nothing could go on in the city without him knowing about it, without him getting a little bit of a taste of it. Uh, and the theory for him goes uh, that, again, he wasn't planning on selling the, uh, the artwork, but that he was going to kind of hold on to it in exchange for a get-out-of-jail-free card uh, for when he eventually would get arrested for any of his other numerous crimes. Uh, I don't think that that's accurate uh, or that that's likely for him, but I do admire the, like the brazenness of it. Uh, and just like being so committed to crime that he's like, well, I'm just going to you know, sit on half a billion worth of paintings because eventually I'm going to go to jail and this will get me out. Like I, I like the commitment to the craft there. Um, but that's really about it. As far as Whitey Bulger goes, um, there is another, uh, Another theory, again, not very likely, um, but it does have some really interesting, uh, interesting uh, facts and coincidences about it. Uh, this one, uh, this one basically involves a, a reporter for the Boston Herald named uh, Tom Mashberg, uh, and he said that he had uh, been shown Rembrandt's "Storm on the Sea of Galilee," which was one of the more famous paintings uh, that was stolen. Uh, in fact, the Boston Herald ended up doing a front page headline that screamed, we've seen it. Uh, they were really, really convinced uh, that he had seen the real genuine article. Um, and they said, quote, under the soft glow of a flashlight, the painting was delicately pulled out and unfurled by the informant and shown to a reporter during the pre-dawn hours of August 18th. So that's just a few months, uh, a few months uh Actually, no, I take that back. Uh, that's still several years after. I was thinking maybe it was August 18th of 1990, uh, but this is 1997. Uh, Mashberg later said that he had apparently been shown a replica, but the article still spark, uh, sparked months of uh, kind of renewed vigor in the case, uh, as well as months of negotiations between the feds uh, and a guy named William P. Youngsworth Jr., 
who was an informant. Um, apparently, he had uh, tried to make an effort to turn that sighting in Boston with a reporter into a recovery of all the missing artwork. Uh, of the missing artwork, uh, Youngworth, uh, who was an antiques dealer, he was trying to get a lot of things out of these negotiations. He was looking for a five million dollar reward. He was looking for immunity from any prosecution related to the theft, uh, as well as dismissal, uh, dismissal of state criminal charges uh, pending against him. Uh, and he also wanted uh, to secure the release of his friend, Miles Connor Jr. Uh, Junior, or Connor Jr. Uh, is actually a notorious art thief. Uh, he actually wrote a really interesting book. Uh, I'll talk about that in a second as well. And at the time, he was serving a 10-year federal prison term for drug charges. Uh, Connor was in prison at the time of the heist, but if anybody uh, could kind of speculate or be cunning enough to get his hands on the artwork afterwards, uh, it was probably uh, Miles Connor Jr. because he was, you know, just very well connected in art, uh, art theft. He knew all the knew all the people and he had the skills to, to do it. So uh, they were kind of thinking that maybe he could be connected somehow, but I I honestly really, really doubt it. Um, so during these negotiations, uh, U.S. Attorney Donald Stern uh, demanded that uh, Youngworth provide cre uh, credible and concrete evidence, quote-unquote. Um, because, I mean, let's face it, he was asking for a lot, $5 million, uh, getting charges dropped, getting somebody out of jail. That's, that's no small order. Uh, so they wanted concrete evidence. Youngworth produced a vial of paint fragments that he said were from one of the stolen Rembrandts. Uh, so the FBI went and uh, ran checks, uh, tests on those because, of course, they would, uh, and determined that they were not from a Rembrandt. They were not the kind of uh, paints and could be proved conclusively to not be Rembrandt, uh, and the deal fell apart. Uh, but what's really interesting about this is a few years later, they did another analysis, uh, an another analysis of the fragments, uh, and they were able to determine that those were actually pretty consistent with other 17th century Dutch artists, uh, one of whom would be Vermeer. Um, and so it's very, well, I, I won't say it's very likely, but it's definitely possible that those fragments came from the concert, uh, which was, again, the most valuable painting uh, from, the, uh, from the heist. So it'd be kind of funny if, a, uh, if the guy just, you know, fucked up on one small detail and ended up not being able to uh to get all of that money and and sit on those uh had to sit on those paintings and not get his friend out of jail and not get the reward um so let's go ahead and uh bring one more piece of uh one more piece of the puzzle to this that i think really just kind of disproves it a little bit more and really makes it more likely that um or almost confirms the fact that there was uh that the reporter was shown a replica of the uh, of the storm on the Sea of Galilee uh, before the painting had been stolen, and uh, this is something that police didn't announce uh, beforehand. Uh, so this is something pretty much known only to either super high-profile art thieves uh, and also like museum staff and professional restorers and things like that. Um, the painting had been covered with a protective coating, like a clear coat. Uh, to help preserve it against uh, the elements and things like that. Uh, but that clear coat also made it impossible or super difficult uh, to roll up. So if they're in a dramatic Brooklyn warehouse and somebody unrolls the painting, that couldn't possibly be it because that painting uh, wouldn't have been pliable enough to do that. 
All right, and finally the last uh, the last theory here. Uh, this one kind of revolves again around uh, organized crime. Uh, two of Boston or one of Boston's most feared uh, mafia capos, a guy named Vincent Ferrara. Uh, the theory basically is that he had the work stolen to get him out of jail. Again, using that um, using that artwork as a as leverage uh, for a negotiation instead of being able to sell it for any sort of monetary value. Uh, that's definitely a way that uh, stolen art is most valuable. Uh, so according to this theory, uh, Ferrara's buddy, Robert Donati, uh, visited, uh, visited him twice in prison right after the heist and confessed that he had stolen the artwork and planned to use it uh, to get Ferrara out of jail. Uh, Donati said that he was worried about the, the manhunt from the FBI for the thieves, so he's just going to kind of lay low for a bit before trying to negotiate an out. Uh, unfortunately, uh, of course, uh, Donati died before any sort of uh, negotiation could be made. Uh, his body was actually found in September of 1991, stuffed in the back of his white Cadillac, classy, uh, and parked about half a mile down the street from his house. He had been viciously beaten and stabbed. Um, and so Ferrara uh, ended up being released from prison in 2005. Uh, but it's not the only time that uh, Donati's name comes up as a possible suspect. Uh, so remember, I said uh, I was talking about Miles Conner Jr. in the last case. Uh, he says that he and Donati had actually talked about stealing, uh, stealing art from uh, the Gardner Museum pretty often. Uh, that they'd talked a lot about the flaws that they had found in the security systems uh, and that sometimes they would climb trees around the perimeter of the museum to try to figure out possible ways to go ahead and get away with it. Uh, one time uh, they ended up uh, casing the museum and uh, he, Miles Conner Jr. ended up telling Donati that he wanted the, the very Chinese vase that was uh, actually stolen in the heist. Uh, and he kind of mentions that in his book, The Art of the Heist, Confessions of a Master Thief, Rock and Roller, and Prodigal Son. Um, and he, of course, uh, in his book, mentions that uh, Donati was one of the thieves. But I think that's pretty, uh, I think that's pretty much bullshit. Uh, I think that that's just him trying to pump up book sales, uh, kind of like the Iceman Richard Kuklinski said that he was one of the guys that killed Jimmy Hoffa. I think sometimes they just attach themselves to high-profile cases and, uh, you know, try to throw their names out there to, to get more credit for things they didn't do. Um, I, yeah, so I don't, I don't really think that's something. I do like the idea of this guy who's a supposed master thief uh, going and casing this place and probably trying to, to play in something real intricate. And then at the end of the day, uh, it's two, uh, two low lowlifes with, no experience that like throw on some wax mustaches walking in there like Dennis Franz and uh, NYPD blue and a roll of duct tape and they're able to steal half a billion dollars. Uh, I think that's kind of funny. All right. So those are, those are the theories behind, uh, behind who stole it. I still think that it was the Merlino crew. Uh, I still think that possibly they had a little bit of help from uh, Richard Abath. But other than that, I really don't think that there's uh, too much credibility in any of the other uh, any of the other theories. I think they're fun theories to look into, but I don't really think that they hold much water. 
and that that kind of brings us to uh, that kind of brings us to the last part, and that's uh, what's going on now with it. Where where is the art? Um, unfortunately, it's it's still not recovered. Uh, it's very likely uh, it's very likely that the the paintings and the artwork was destroyed. Uh, it's been 27 years now, and hopefully uh, those things are intact. Hopefully they're just hiding in a in a warehouse somewhere or some some apartment in Brooklyn or Philly, because I know that the feds were able to track the movement of some of those uh, works of art to Philadelphia and uh, and Connecticut shortly after the crime. But that was kind of when the trail went cold. Um, it is, again, worth repeating that right now there is a $10 million reward being offered by the museum until the end of the year. So if you do have any tips or theories or anything like that, uh, go ahead, give the museum a call, give the FBI a call, and see uh, see if those pan out. Um, unfortunately, most of the people connected with the case uh, are pretty much long dead, and uh, it's just going to get harder and harder. There is a... Uh, a guy um, currently, he says, he's actually saying that he's going to have it cracked by the end of the year. So I'm, I might do a follow-up episode on this. Uh, but there's a Dutch private investigator named Arthur Brand, who's kind of like the Indiana Jones of the art world. Uh, super, super fascinating guy. Uh, I, would, I would love to have him on this someday. Uh, so who knows? Like, uh, do a lot of reviews of this. Like, let's see if this takes off. And I will try to get Arthur Brand, uh, the Dutch private investigator, uh, to come on here, especially after or especially if he cracks uh, cracks this case and can get the um, get the artwork restored and uh, returned to its home. Um, but until those pieces of art are returned, uh, the only thing we have left of them are the empty frames, the empty shelves, and the ghosts of their memory in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, just kind of hanging out and waiting to be whole again. So if you're ever in Boston, go ahead, check out the museum. It's a beautiful place. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening to I Can Steal That. Uh, We will have another exciting episode for you soon.